0: A note of caution, tonight we are showing a DVD, the sound may not pick up the entire wording from the DVD, and as a result, this will be re-recorded at the end of this CD. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Let's begin our class. Always some latecomers. Oh. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. It would help if I turn this on. There we go. Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts this evening. We want to... We ask that you give us the strength and the courage to... Listen to what you have to say to us through Holy Scripture. Help us then to open our ears and our heart, really, uh, to absorb the message that comes through not only Scripture, but tonight on this special DVD that we are showing. So we thank you and praise you for all things in Jesus' name. I want to welcome everyone. uh members and guests. It's nice to have uh, almost a full house. And we're going to have a little bit of a different kind of meeting tonight. Uh, it'll be the first time in a long, long time that I've shown a, a DVD in any of these classes. Uh, but it's uh, it's based on the subject of the overall uh, meeting, the session on the saints. As Role Models for Modern Society. Uh, This DVD is is part of a uh, ten-part series on Catholicism by Father Robert Barron. B-A-R-R-O-N. No relation. Um, It is very well done. And uh, this particular segment that we will be showing is approximately one hour long. And it is based on the lives uh, of four saints, or three saints and one uh, saint-to-be. Uh, that's Sister Catherine Drexel, uh, Sister Edith Stein, Sister Therese of Lisieux, the the and Mother Teresa of Calcutta, who will be uh, canonized at some uh, near future date. Okay, She is up, I think, as far as blessed. If uh, you're not aware, in order to be declared a saint, a person must go through a very long and tedious process uh, that takes uh, many years. It cannot even begin until at least five years after the death of the individual. Uh, the moment that it is accepted at Rome after a rather long uh, session at, in their own locality under the direction of the local bishop, they are declared a servant of God, which in a way is, we're all servants of God in, in many ways. The next process then, uh, carrying it forward, will be uh, venerable, where they are declared venerable and that's only after a miracle has been uh, proven to be part of their life and according to their intercession. Then it goes on uh, through another stage, uh, much more trial and scrutiny, uh, to a level of called blessed. And that is probably the more important one. Uh, the final stage is saint. And they are then put on the roles of the Catholic Church, the roles which we call the canon. Uh, And that only means that this individual has been proven to be in heaven with God. That is the primary criteria of anyone to be declared a saint. You notice I do not use the words made a saint. Uh, Often the media when, uh, after a ceremony in Rome or wherever, most likely in Rome, but not necessarily, uh, when one or more saints have, uh, one or more persons have been declared as canonized as saints, the media will often say, well, the church made some more saints. Uh, that's a very improper and almost demeaning uh, term because the only person that can make a saint is the individual him or herself in cooperation with the Holy Spirit. Okay. That's the only way. A person cannot make a saint themselves. Uh, they must be in cooperation with the Holy Spirit. That is part of the Holy Spirit's job uh, and purpose and his role in overall creation. So, I'd like to show this DVD, uh, then afterwards uh, we will have a discussion on it. It is really only part of the session tonight to show the DVD. If we don't talk about the process, the individual saints, what they accomplished, then I think we're missing a lot of it. All right? And so... Don't be afraid to ask questions. There are no uh, foolish questions. Uh, sometimes there's a foolish answer. but um, No foolish questions. So please, if you have a question, uh, you should bring it up and we'll try to answer it the best we can. All right. Any questions right now? There are two uh, segments on this DVD. We're showing the second one.
1: Of God. A saint is someone of heroic virtue. A saint is someone who is in heaven. All three are true, and all three are finally saying the same thing. I suggest a saint is someone who is allowing Christ to live his life in him. St. Paul said, it's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. If we look in the fifth chapter of Luke's gospel, we find a peculiar story. Jesus has been preaching to the crowds, and he spies two boats by the shore of the sea. He gets into the one belonging to Simon Peter. He says, Put out into the deep and lower your nets for a catch. Peter does so, and he brings in the miraculous draft of the fishes. He's so overwhelmed. He gets down on his knees and says, "Lord, leave me. I'm a sinful man." Jesus said, "Do not be afraid. I will make you a fisher of men." If we unpack that little story, I think we discover many of the dynamics of what it means to be a sinner. For Galilee and fishermen of that time, his boat was everything. It was his livelihood, means of supporting his family, his connection to the wider world. Well, Jesus, without asking permission, just gets into Peter's boat and begins giving orders. This represents the invasion of grace, the inbreaking of God's love. Notice, grace doesn't <clears throat> compromise or undermine what it invades, rather it enhances it. I presume Peter was a successful enough fisherman. Sure. But once he allows Jesus to get into his boat and begin ordering him, now he brings in a catch of the likes of which he couldn't have imagined. So it goes in the order of grace. If we're willing to cooperate with it, we experience light and light to the full. Why do I suggest a saint is someone who has allowed Jesus to get into his boat? Let's explore this dynamic by looking at lives of four relatively contemporary women saints. I want to place special emphasis on the manner in which Jesus, uninvited, graciously invaded their lives and with their cooperation transfigured them from the inside and out. It's crucially important that we see these women in action so that we can apprentice them, learn from them, and finally follow love the spiritual writer Naomi Blois once commented there's only one real sadness in life not to be a sad Her father was Francis Anthony Drexel, an internationally known banker and one of the richest men in America. Catherine's childhood was idyllic. Along with her siblings, she was given a first-class education in languages, literature, philosophy, music, and painting. She lived in a sumptuous mansion in Philadelphia, and she summered with her family at a lovely country estate outside the city. Her father and stepmother, her mother had died just after her birth, were both devout Catholics. They had a chapel in their home, and their father repaired to it for prayer every day after work. Also, three afternoons a week, her parents would throw up their home to the poor and those in need. The Drexels drilled into their children the conviction that their wealth had been entrusted to them, and was destined, therefore, to be used for the common good. When she was 14, Catherine met a man who had exert a decisive influence on in her life, Father James O'Connor. They would have met here at the Drexel Summer Hall, You can see it right behind me. It's now part of a busy and sprawling hospital complex in Philadelphia. Catherine was already exhibiting signs of great spiritual seriousness, and under O'Connor's direction, she actually laid out a program for growth and holiness. Pretty heavy stuff for a teenage girl. In 1878, when she was 20, her formal education ended. In January of 1879, she was presented to Philadelphia High Society. Now, you would think for someone of that time and of her social class, that would have been a a very important event. Catherine Drexel, frankly, was rather bored and nonplussed by it all. Soon afterward, and within a few months of each other, Catherine's beloved father and stepmother died. She found herself inheriting a fortune of money. She and each of her sisters received $4 million from their father's estate, probably closer to $400 million in our term. But Catherine was unsettled. She didn't know quite what to do with this money or what to do with her life. At this point, two other extraordinary men came to see her. One was Bishop Martin Marty, the other was Father Joseph Stephan. They were both involved in the Catholic Indian Mission. The church's outreach to Native Americans. They described their work so eloquently that Catherine was inspired to give a large part of her fortune to this work. She even ventured west with them to see the fruit of her donation.
2: The first connections with the work of missionaries to the Native Americans coincided with a period of great inner
1: turmoil. Following the deaths of her parents, Catherine's health took a turn for the worse, and she was plunged into a period of anxiety and indecision. She was struggling to find her purpose in life. She did what a number of wealthy Americans of the time did in such circumstances. She went to Europe to take the baths, to go to a series of resorts and spawns. On this trip, Catherine had another life-changing encounter. At the end of her European sojourn, Catherine had an audience with Pope Leo XIII. Still mourning the death of her parents, still emotionally <laughs> distraught, still trying to find her path in life. She knelt before the Pope spoke to him of her passion for the Indian mission. She said, Holy Father, you must find an order of priests or nuns to send, to teach, to catechize, and to love these good people. The Pope fixed her with his gaze, and he said, you should be that missionary. The Pope's words cut Catherine to the soul. She
0: said she felt sick all over. She couldn't get out of the Vatican fast enough. And when she was outside,
1: she sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. The pope had obviously struck a nerve. It also served to focus her desire. She began to wonder whether God was calling her to be a nun, perhaps even the founder of a religious order, one dedicated to the poorest and most forgotten of Americans. When she informed her spiritual director, he was, at first, reticent. How could this coddled and well-educated aristocrat, accustomed to the finest things, accept the severe discipline of a religious life? But in time, he relented, and Catherine entered the division of the Sisters of Mercy of Pittsburgh in May of 1889. Two years later, she made her final profession as the first member of the Sisters of the Blessed Sacrament for Indians and colored people. Catherine managed to attract a large number of young women eager to share her life. They gathered at the mother house outside of Philadelphia and spent three years in formation and training before they set out for missionary work. One of their first outposts was among the Pueblo Indians of New Mexico. Next, they set up a school for African-American children along the James River in Virginia. I saw the most important foundation to follow. Xavier University in New Orleans as a center for advanced studies for black young people, a place and purpose unheard of at the time. Where did the money come from for all these works and undertakings? Well, it came from Catherine's trust fund, that money given to her by her father. Catherine gave and gave and gave until there was no more to give. Yeah. Utterly spending herself in service of her mission. Was this justice? So much more than that. Was an extraordinary justice, so much more than that. It was justice elevated, transfigured, rendered luminescent by grace. Christ had so seized Catherine with light that she now became a living icon of his presence. It's in that that her sanctity consists. For many years, Catherine directed the work of her community. She traveled widely all over the country, visiting her sisters. At a time when travel was quite difficult. On one of her trips in 1935, she suffered a heart attack. The doctors told her, unless she curtailed her schedule, she wouldn't survive. So Catherine Dressel entered into what she took to be the most spiritually productive period of her the last 20 years. And here in this place, in this mother house, every day, before the Blessed Sacrament, she prayed for the success of her work. To be saints, we should want to be a saint. And, and don't settle for a second best, for a second or third grade spiritual life. No, I want to be a great saint. That's what you've been designed for. And in fact, all of us, Emily Waugh said this, he said, All of us, when we get to heaven, if we get there, we'll all be saints, so and so. Because only saints live in heaven. Yes. All right. Now, it might be through a long process of purification in this life and the life to come, but nevertheless, when you get to heaven, by God, you're a saint. And so that's what we're all aspiring to be—saints. See, that's why I tell people that's a cool thing, a good thing to want, and to want it with all your heart. You know, say, "I I want to be the most famous person in the world." That's stupid. I want to be the most uh, wealthiest person in the world. That's a waste of time. But I want to be a saint with all my heart. Off you go. That's a great thing to desire. I'm in front of this grand and glorious basilica, dedicated to a very simple woman, also one of the strangest and most extraordinary of the saints of the church, Teresa of this year. She was a cloistered Carmelite nun who died at the age of 24. At the time of her death, she was known only to her family and to the sisters in convent. And yet, within a few years of her death, she had a worldwide reputation. She was declared a saint and eventually a doctor of the church. When a reliquary containing her bones was brought to the U.S. in the 1990s, millions of people responded. They say when that same reliquary was brought to Ireland, almost the entire country moved to see it. How do we begin to explain this? It has a lot to do with her extraordinary spiritual autobiography called The Story of a Soul. that when I first read The Story of the Soul, I didn't like it particularly. Like many others, I found it a bit overly sentimental, emotionally overwrought. And as a post-Freudian, I was only too willing to see evidence of neuroses and repression. But then I noticed something. The number of truly great intellectuals who loved Zvez, think of Dorothy Day, Edith Stein, Thomas Merton, John Paul II, Hans Urs von Volker, just to name a few, and then when I was a doctoral student in Paris, my thesis director, Michel Corbin, a very brilliant man, was explaining one day to me how the French don't refer to Therese as the little flowers we did, but rather as la petite Therese, the little Therese, as opposed to la grande Therese, the great Teresa, the Teresa of But then he added this. After many years of reading Therese of Lisieux, he said, I realized, elle est vraiment la grande Therese. She is truly the great Theresa. I realized I had to take a second look. She was born on January 2nd, 1873, the youngest child of Louis Martin and his wife Sadie, two extremely pious members of the French middle class. By her own admission, Theresa's childhood was blissful. The youngest child she was adored on by everyone, especially her father. He was her petit roi, little king, and she was his petit divine, little queen. Very early in life, she had the intuition that she would follow her sister Pauline into the Carmelite convent and become a religious. She never wavered from this resolution. The bliss of her childhood came to an abrupt end with the death of her mother in 1877, when Therese was only four. Afterward, she became withdrawn, moody, as she herself said, sensitive to an excessive degree. Her time at school in Lezura was not pleasant, as she was picked on by her classmates. For the first time in her life, she felt herself, as she put it, weighed and found wanting. The full effect of her mother's death on Therese would appear when Pauline, her older sister and substitute mother, decided to enter the country. Therese experienced a strange malady with both physical and psychological symptoms, some of them quite frightening. She would cry violently, suffer from severe headaches, fall into fits of shivering. Here is Therese's own description of this period. I was absolutely terrified of. Savior finally was a manifestation of grace. On May 13, 1883, Therese found herself here in bed. She was utterly debilitated, physically, psychologically, unable to help herself. And then she noticed the statue of the Blessed Mother. It had been in her room before, but it was though she was noticing it for the first time. She said she was struck by the ravishing beauty of the statue, and especially by the Virgin Mary's smile. When she noticed the smile of the blessed mother, all of her physical and psychological symptoms left her. She was healed. Now, how do we explain this extraordinary in incident? We can look at it in many ways of suppose. But Titus saw it as a manifestation of God's grace, God's unmerited love. When she came of age, she became one of the great doctors of grace in our tradition. Yes, we cooperate with God's love, but finding the beginning and the end of a spiritual life his grace. Mm-hmm. The next great step in Teresa's spiritual journey was again a private, small matter, nothing to which a conventional biographer would draw attention. It took place on Christmas Day. It was a custom in the Montan family that very early on Christmas morning, just after midnight mass. The children would come home, and they would draw from their shoes that were arranged right here in front of the fireplace little gifts that their parents would play in them. Well, Therese loved this ritual, and especially her father's participation. But that early morning, 1886, Therese went up this staircase, and she was presumably out of earshot. She heard her father say, well, fortunately, this is the last time. Now, that comment normally would have broken her heart, and she would have dissolved in tears something different happened. Significantly on this birthday of Jesus, she realized that Jesus had invaded her heart. So instead, she suppressed those feelings. She came down those stairs, and with unfeigned enthusiasm, she participated in this family ritual. What do we see here in this very simple scene? We see the invasion of grace. So realized now that her life had to be completely determined by the love of Jesus. In the wake of this event, the desire to become a Carmelite, which had been in her since childhood, now became a burning preoccupation. After she convinced her father that this was right for her, she met with extraordinary courage a number of bishops and ecclesiastics who opposed her and told her that she was too young. But she resolved to bring the case to the highest possible court. She joined a group of pilgrims going to Rome, hoping to present her plea personally to Pope Leo XIII himself. On November 20th, 1887, Therese had her audience. Though she'd been told to say nothing to the Pope, she blurted out, Holy Father, in honor of your jubilee, permit me to enter Carmel at the age of 15. The Pope smiled. And told her to do what her superiors ordered. But she persisted, Oh, Holy Father, if you say yes, everyone will agree. The Pope responded, Go, go, you will enter if God wills. At that point, still begging and weeping, she was carried off bodily by two papal guards. A month later, the bishop of Mayur relented, and she was given permission to enter Carmel. For the next nine years, until her death in 24, Therese never left the confines of the Lucio Carmel, living the simple life of a Carmelite religious. But in the course of those years, she began to cultivate a spiritual path that she came to call the little way. It was not the path of her great Carmelite forebearers, Teresa of Avila, and John of the Cross, not the way of spiritual athletes, but a way that any simple believer could follow. It had a great deal to do with spiritual childhood, becoming a little child in the presence of God the Father dependent, hopeful, waiting to receive gifts. She wrote this in the story of the soul. Jesus deigned to show me the road that leads to this divine furnace, and this road is the surrender of the little child who sleeps without fear in his father's arms. It involved, too, a willingness to do simple and ordinary things out of great love. Little acts of kindness, small sacrifices accepted graciously. One of the most memorable passages in the story of a soul is Teresa's delicious description of her very patient dealings with a cranky old nun to whom she'd been assigned. At the heart of the little way is the prudence to know in any given situation. What is the demand of love? Willing the good of the other as others. Toward the end of her life, Therese experienced the intense desire to do all the things the great figures in the history of the church had done. She said, I wanted to be priest, martyr, missionary, evangelist, and doctor. Then she thought, how could I possibly be any of these things in my little monastery here in Camp Then she read Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And she was struck by that magnificent passage where Paul talks about the more excellent way, the way of love. Therese realized in a flash that love was the form of all the virtues. Love would made the lives of all the saints possible. Love was what undergirded the work of priest, missionary, evangelist, doctor. And so she said, Jesus, my love, I found my vocation. I will be love in the heart of the church. That is the little way. I mentioned at the outset how I, like many others, was initially put off by the overly emotional, sentimental style of the little father. But even the most skeptical reader is usually won over by the account of her terrible struggle at the end of her life with unbelief, but began to plague Jarets for doubts about the very existence of heaven. Like Hamlet, she began to wonder whether anything followed this sleep of death. And this was no passing bout of intellectual scrupulosity, It would last up until the very end of her life. She wrote, This trial was to last not a matter of days or weeks. It would not be extinguished until the hour set by God himself. And that hour has not yet come. She wrote that just a few weeks before she died. What's extraordinary is how she interpreted this book as a participation in the pain of so many of her contemporaries who no longer believe in God. She wrote, During the joyful days of Easter, Jesus made me really feel there are souls who have no faith. He allowed my soul to be invaded by the thickest darkness." Res died of tuberculosis on September 30, 1897. As I mentioned at the outset, at the time of her death, she was known only by a handful of people. Yet, within a few years of her passing, through the influence of the story of soul, the little way began to beguile people all over the world. Spoke of Catherine Drexel's activity as a sort of elevated justice. We might characterize Teresa's holiness as transfigured prudence. Prudence is a kind of moral know how. A little way is prudence elevated and transfigured by the radicality of Christ's love. She had a great poetic imagination. That's what grabs people, too. She always protested that she was not one of these spiritual athletes. She knew about John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila, these great figures. She admired them. And she would say, but I'm not like that. I'm not a spiritual athlete. I'm not one of these great trees that grow up to God. I'm just a little flower, and that's where the big name comes from. I am a little flower on the floor of the forest. I'm always was going to never But, But the sun can shine. Equally on all of them. The sun hits the high trees and the sun comes down to the forest floor. And so it's a great metaphor for the universality of grace. That we're all uh, susceptible to the influence of grace. The sun shines on the good and the bad alike, it shines on the great and the small alike. So that was a great bit of spiritual intuition she had, I think, that appeals to people. Well, about that analogy of like, you said, you met their hand with the God? Oh, yeah. That's a splendid one, I think. It's beautiful. And there's there's kind of a wry smile behind it because she again acknowledges the spiritual athletes. all those really serious people, they're climbing their way up to God. And she admired them. But she also, with that little wry smile, would say, well, I'm just this little child. I can't climb, mom, but I can raise my arms up like this. And and of course, he's going to want to pick me up. And then she sort of winks at the spiritual athletes and says, and actually, I get higher than you because he lifts me right up. It's that kind of perception that I think people find um, very moving and very attractive. Einstein was born October the twelfth, eighteen ninety-one, in Breslau, a town situated now within the borders of Poland, but then part of the German Empire. She was the seventh and youngest child of pious Jewish parents. Like Therese of she was doted on by her parents, like a, as she would it, cross between a fairy-tale princess and a porcelain doll. Mm-hmm. One of her earliest memories is of herself, standing in front of a big white door, drumming on it with clenched fists because she wanted to get to the other side. This determination would stay with her all her life father died suddenly when Edith was still quite young, and she bonded strongly with her mother. Prof Stein introduced her daughter to the disciplines and peace of the Jewish religion, as well as the world of the Bible. And her elder brother Paul began to read to her regularly from the great works of German literature. But as the years passed, her passion for the word grew, even as her faith faded. By the time Edith was a teenager, she no longer believed in God. As a university student, she became fascinated by the work of Edmund Husserl and his new and famously complex school of phenomenology. She longed to study with the master herself, and so came in 1913 to Krugigen, where Husserl taught. In short order, she was introduced to Husserl and to the circle of brilliant students who had formed around him. She labored away in her doctoral studies. Pursuing the typically phenomenological theme of empathy or fellow feeling, like many doctoral students before and since, Ian experienced tremendous strain while undertaking this project. She wrote, This excruciating struggle to attain clarity was waged unceasingly inside me, depriving me of rest day and night. Little by little, I worked myself into a state of veritable despair. She survived this period of struggle and earned her doctorate in 1915, barely two years after arriving in Göttingen. Soon after she finished her work, Husserl received an appointment to the University of Freiburg in Ryansdale, and the master asked Edith to go with him as his assistant. She returned to her work with
0: Husserl, but she
1: frankly found it less than satisfying because the master treated her as more or less a glorified secretary. In fact, many of Edith's friends were scandalized that someone of her great intellect was forced to perform such simple tasks. In 1917, Edith paid a courtesy call to the widow of Otto Rhine, an old acquaintance from her Gertiga days who had been killed in the war. She expected to find the young widow devastated, but instead she found her sad but fundamentally at peace. The serenity, she learned, was the product of the woman's Christian faith. She wrote, It was my first encounter with the cross, and the divine power that it bestows on those who carry it. Edith was finding a new and vibrant center. Jesus was getting into her boat. Another turning point occurred when Edith was in Frankfurt, making her way into the old city. She and a friend came upon the cathedral, and they entered as tourists, intent upon admiring the architecture. But Edith saw a woman there, fresh from her rounds of shopping, kneeling in silent and intense prayer. She would certainly seen people praying in the synagogue before, but never anything like this. She said, I could never forget that. Edith's conversion was not like Paul's, and dramatic. It was more like Newman's or Augustine's. Gradual interior, accompanied by much intellectual wrestling. One night she was staying with friends and she wanted to find a book to pass the time. She took off the shelf a copy of Teresa Mabalow's autobiography. She stayed up all night reading The next morning she put the book down and she said simply, that is the truth. What especially impressed her about the book? It's impossible to say. When she was pressed on the matter, she simply said, secretum veem be. That's my secret. I think it's fair to say that the reading of Teresa's autobiography was the galvanizing moment. It was the occasion for all the strands to come together. After a few weeks of thinking and praying, Edith approached her local pastor and asked to be baptized. When he bought, due to her recent conversion, she said eagerly, Who can see Test me. She was received into the church on January 1st, 1922. In those days, the feast of the circumcision, the first shedding of Jesus' blood. Edith wanted to immediately to join the Carmelites, the order of her religious hero. But her director asked her to wait. She became instead a professor at a teacher's training college run by the Dominican system. Among the Dominicans, it began to live, essentially, a religious life. The desire for Carmel continued to burn, and in June of 1933, it was accepted into the Carmel here in Cologne. Though she was far older than the other postulants and novices, she took very readily right to Carmelite life, light light, as though she was born for it. November of 1938. knocked, The night of the broken glass. Suddenly, Jews all over Germany were in acute danger. In search for her safety, Edith's Superiors transferred her from the Carmel here in Cologne to the Carmel in Eck in Holland. But in 1940, the Nazis overran Holland. The danger that loomed over Edith here now threatened again. Briefly, the Dutch bishops raised their voices in protest over the ill treatment of Jews. The Archbishop of Utrecht finally ordered that Nazi policy be attacked from every pulpit of the country. The Nazis retaliated brutally, ordering a roundup of old Jews who had converted to Catholicism. On Sunday, August the 2nd, 1942, the Gestapo came for Edith and her sister, who had joined Edith in the convent. Amidst the diffusion, he had calmly said, "Come, Rosa. We're going for our people." The sisters were held briefly in a camp, and then were packed on what amounted to a cattle car for the trip to Auschwitz. A former student of Ead's reported an encounter when the train would briefly stop at a platform in Germany. After exchanging pleasantries, Edith told him to convey this message to the Mother Superior in act. We are going to the East, a phrase both literal and spiritual in import. There's still another report from a German soldier who was making his way to the Eastern Front. On August the 7th, while he was on the train platform in Breslau, in his hometown, a train pulled up. The door was pulled back to reveal people packed together like animals, the stench coming from the car unbearable. Then a woman appeared in a Carmelite habit. She commented on the terrible conditions, but then she said wistfully, This is my beloved hometown. I will never see it again. Many years later, this former soldier saw a photograph of Edith Stein and identified her as the nun that he had met that day. On August the 9th, 1942, Edith arrived here at Birgitow. She was selected immediately for execution. They brought her here for this death chamber. You can see the ruins that were just behind it. And here she was murdered. Subsequently, her body would burn, and the ashes strewn to the wind. The classical moral philosopher spoke of courage as the virtue that enabled one to do the good despite external threats. What we see in a martyr such as Edith Stein is not ordinary courage, but courage elevated and transformed to love. We see a willingness to give away even one's life out of love for Christ and his people. Thomas Aquinas' sister asked him one time, what must I do to be a saint? He said, Will it? And that's a good answer. You see, part of our problem is that we accept the kind of spiritual mediocrity of uh, being a saint, come on. Well, I mean there's so many different types of saints. Uh, great sinners who became saints. People that were a million miles from God who became saints. Part of it is to, is to want it, is to move beyond a sort of spiritual mediocrity and say, no, I, I want to be a person of heroic virtue. I want to follow Christ with all my heart. And so desire it. Um, and, and stop playing the game of a false humility. This is well I can never do that. No, well, God can do whatever he wants. God can make a saint uh, for many of us. But we have the desire to cooperate with it. Um, In Skopje, Serbia. When she was 12, Agnes felt the first stirrings of a religious vocation, though she had, at that point in her life, never as much as laid eyes on her nun. Agnes applied at the age of 18 to the Loretto Sisters, the Irish branch of the Institute of the Blessed Virgin Mary, which had a strong missionary presence in India. During her postulancy, She took the name Sister Mary Teresa of the Child Jesus after the recently canonized little flower. After spending a brief period in Ireland, she set sail for India. When she arrived in India, she was dazzled by its luxuriant natural beauty and shocked beyond words by its grinding poverty. Though she had known poverty in Serbia, nothing prepared her for what she saw in India. The conviction grew in her that service to such poor would involve a radical simplifying. Own life. Mm -hmm. At first, Teresa was isolated from the worst of Calcutta's poverty. She was teaching geography and English behind the high walls of Loretto Conference School. But then she began to teach in a grade school some miles away, and she came face to face once again with dreadful poverty. For the next several years, Teresa, now called Mother since she had taken final vows, Worked at a furious base, teaching, ministering, caring for the sick. So arduous was her word, but she's experienced to kind of break down. was sent to Darjeeling, the restful place where she'd been a novice, in order to recruit. Women. On the dusty train to Darjeeling, she had the experience that would change her life. She received the call of Don to be a missionary of charity a summons to serve the poorest of the poor, to follow Jesus with a reckless abandon. She called this the hidden treasure for me. And she understood it as a summons to slake the thirst of Jesus for souls. When she returned to Calcutta, she submitted herself to the spiritual direction of Father Celeste von Exum, a Belgian Jesuit who would prove an extremely helpful and important figure in her life. After a year of prayer and discernment, Mother Teresa and Father Von Exon brought the idea of founding a new order to serve the poorest of the poor to the Archbishop of Calcutta, Ferdinand Pavier. A wise character, Perrier tested the vocation of a little nun, throwing up all sorts of objections and roadblocks. Despite his opposition, she persisted, and the Archbishop's admiration for her grew eventually consulted experts in canon law and advised the way to release Mother Teresa from her vows to the rebel sisters and to found her own community. In April of 1948, formal approval came from Rome and Mother Teresa said simply, can I go to the slums now? In the first weeks and months of her new life, Mother Teresa experience, understandably enough, thoughts of discouragement and loneliness, and becoming desirous desire to return to the relative comfort and ease of Loreto. But she persevered. She knew that if she was to serve the poorest of the poor, she had to live right now. And that's something that we've come to expect in the lives of the saints. When a work is of God, people are drawn to it. And so many of Mother Teresa's former students came to join her here in the slums of Calcutta. They became the first... Missionary to charity. She quickly formed them into a religious community, a fashioning rules which combined elements of the Jesuit and Franciscan spiritual traditions. She put special emphasis on their identification with the poorest of the poor. All of the first missionaries of charity were loved to were a cotton sari, a pair of sandals, a crucifix, a rosary, a metal bucket for washing, and a very thin mattress that served as a bed. Also like the early Franciscans and Dominicans, they were compelled to beg for their food. There was also a kind of poverty built into the rhythm of their day. During the week, the sisters rose at 4.40 a.m., brushed their teeth with ash from the kitchen stove, and scrubbed their bodies with a small bar of soap that had been divided into six. Between 5.15 and 6.45, they meditated, prayed, and attended Mass. They ate a small breakfast, and were then on the streets doing their work by 7.45. They returned at noon for prayers and a small midday meal and then rested in spiritual reading, until they returned to their pastoral work in the slums. At first, the work of the missionaries of charity was restricted here to Calcutta, but beginning in the 1950s and 1960s, the order began to spread, first across India, and then around the world. There were establishments in Venezuela and Tanzania, United States, Australia, England. By the end of the 1990s, there were over 500 establishments on six continents, Mother Teresa said, if there are poor people on the moon, we shall go there too. In time, Mother became an internationally renowned figure, winning the Nobel Peace Prize in 1979. To the surprise of many outside the church, she used her Nobel speech as an occasion to decry abortion as the greatest enemy of peace Mm -hmm. in contemporary society. No account of Mother Teresa's life would be complete, however, without making reference to her terrible interior struggle, her unique participation in the suffering of Christ. Though she experienced extraordinary closeness to Jesus most of her life, once the order got underway, she experienced just the opposite an aching sense of the Lord's absence. And this darkness lasted with one brief respite for the rest of her life. devastating account of what it felt like to endure this darkness. In my soul, I feel just that terrible pain of loss of God not wanting me, of God not being God, of God not really existing. My work holds no joy, no attraction, no season. She came to understand her suffering as a sharing in the passion of Jesus. His own feeling of abandonment by the Father. Feeling the absence of God, Mother Teresa entered even more fully into the suffering of those she longed to serve. And this experience brought her, as we saw, remarkably close to her namesake, Timnaz of who at the end of her life faced a similar struggle believing in God and in the reality of heaven. Mother Teresa died on September the 5th, 1997. At the age of 87, when her body was displayed for public viewing, it was of course clothed in the habit of the Missionaries of Charity, but it was also left shoeless, revealing her remarkably gnarled feet. For many people, those misshapen feet spoke most eloquently of her hard years of service on behalf of the poorest of the poor. The philosophers speak of temples. Virtue by which we control our desires of food, drink, and pleasure, so that we might achieve an advance of justice. What we see Mother Teresa is elevated, transfigured in the a discipline of the desires which goes far beyond the requirements of justice, so as to serve the infinite demand. We I mean, have so many of them. And they're all different personalities, different backgrounds, different styles. Part of the beauty of the church is you have a saint like Thomas Aquinas, a towering intellectual, and a saint like Francis Assisi, who wasn't much of an intellectual at all. You've got a warrior saint like Joan of Arc, and then you've got uh, saints of nonviolence. You have saints from all different backgrounds and temperaments and personalities, and part of it is to find the saint that's really suitable for you. Something I tell people about too is the opposite. Find a saint that's like you, but also find a saint that's not like you. Find a saint that's from a different background, has a very different personality, and see what you can learn from that saint. But that's the glory of what we call the communion of saints, We all these different figures. Thank God. There isn't just one model of holiness. There's a lot of ways to be holy. And so we can all find our place. Light, like a white light. Pure, simple, complete. But when that light shines, as it were, through the prism of individual human lives, it grace into an infinite variety of colors. The four women we consider couldn't be more different from one another. And that is why each one allows a unique dimension of the divine holiness to appear. God's grace shown through the individuality of Catherine Drexel and produced a miracle of transfigured justice. It shown through the particularity of Nina Stein and gave us the clarity of her intellectual work and the beauty of her heart. It shown through the uniqueness of Theresa Messier and gave us the little way. It shown through the unrepeatable identity of Mother Teresa and brought forth the missionaries of Charity. church revels in the variety of the saints because it needs such diversity in order to represent the infinite
0: intensity of God's goodness. Well, that's going to have to stay that way because I don't know how to turn it off. <laughs> uh i hope you like the dvd presentation it uh really i think demonstrates that we can all be saints if we really want to but it's not something that we take upon ourselves to go out and find a big job to do our heroic virtue it is not important uh, for what we want to do. What is important is that we find what God wants of us or from us and then work with that. I think if you recall, each of these four women went through a struggle, a mental as well as physical struggle. And usually that is indicative of a person who is, pardon the expression, hell-bent for doing their own thing. And then they get caught up in this idea of the self, and God turns them around, so that they see that it is not what they want to do for God or for the church, but what is more important is for them to realize and work with what God wants from them. And the only way they can really find that is through going through that struggle and praying. Praying that God enlightens them with the idea of what is their particular role in God's plan. All right? It does not have to be some grand and glorious thing. You don't have to be a very wealthy person like Catherine Drexel. You don't have to be uh, somebody from a totally different faith, such as Judas Stein, or as he pronounced it, Stein. Uh, Cindy, how do you pronounce your last name? Stein, okay. Uh, um, But I think he's pronouncing it the German way, yes. Okay. You don't have to be a, a Mother Teresa going out into the slums because if God wants you to do something that is relatively simple, such as Teresa of Lisieux. She didn't do anything of great heroics or great importance, but when she would write her relationship with God, that became her contribution to humanity. And that became the important element that people then were attracted to her Through her writings. Which were not intended. Really for publication. And for dissemination. Throughout the world. So you can see. Saints come from. All different walks of life. There is no cookie cutter mold. That God has. And if you don't fit the mold. You'll never get there. No way. Alright. We all have an equal opportunity. That's. You know, God was the first one to uh, establish the, the right of equal opportunity on the job. Okay? And that's exactly uh, where it all comes from. Now, I'd like to have you open up and ask your questions, and I'll be, uh, I'll try very hard to answer them. Any questions? Yes, Gail? Many, many men saints. yes. Alright, just, he mentioned a few right there. St. Francis of Assisi, uh, you know, St. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, St. Augustine, uh, look at all of the cities right here in California that are mer- named after saints. There are more men than women. Okay? I think there's uh, about 20 cities named after the saints, perhaps more in some small areas. Alright. Any other question? Yes? Oh, but Judas. Yes. Yes. Now, that's an interesting, or that brings up an interesting point. The whole idea of saints as we think of it today only came about in the year of 1254. 1234, all right? One, two, three, four. 1234, when Rome and the Pope took over the control, you might say, of who was to be declared a saint and who could not be. Prior to that, it was generally by uh, acclamation. In other words, people within a small village or a small town or some noble person, you know, kings and queens, or quite a few kings and queens, uh, that were declared a saint, not by Rome, but by the local people, primarily the bishop of the diocese in which he was living. All right. But that got a little out of hand because there was no way to determine uh, the, lo- the life of that uh, individual or to understand and determine, uh, in any positive way that that person was truly in heaven. And as Father Barron said, the whole measurement and the whole goal of sainthood is to be re- uh, to be united with God in heaven. Thank you, sir. And prior to the 13th century, there was really very little that could be done to go back and to examine the details of some of these people that were declared saints. So, Rome took over control of the process for declaring Who is a saint? And as I said at the beginning of the meeting, it has now become a very long, tedious process. And there are people on both sides. Because in the early days in the 12th and 13th century, many people had opposition uh, or opposing views as to why a certain person should or should not be uh, declared a saint. And so a trial was set up, and there was a individual who was the prosecutor years ago. He used to be called the devil's advocate, and he would, uh, and it was always a he, uh, uh, he would try to argue uh, against whether he personally felt that or not. He would try to present all kinds of opposition, and if uh, that could be overcome, then that person would uh, pass through at least that particular goal. As I said uh, earlier, uh, the requirement now is that uh, two miracles at different stages, different locations, and different circumstances be attributed uh, to the intercession of a person before he or she can be declared a saint. Now, Pope John the, uh, Paul II was the first one to open the doors to anybody and everybody who met that particular test. Prior to the Vatican II and prior to Pope John Paul II's reign, very few individuals who were not religious, priests, nuns, monks, brothers of that kind, Uh, could ever reach the stage of sainthood. Uh, They just felt it was um, only those people who had dedicated their lives to the church that could reach that area. Uh, Pope Paul VI and later John Paul II advocated that all people had an equal chance of being declared a saint, provided again that they met the test. And this is documented in one of the uh, major documents of Vatican II, uh, the Dogmatic Constitution on the Church, Chapter 5, which is entitled, The Universal Call to Holiness. Those of you who are in this class uh, have a copy of that, and anyone that would like it would be very happy to provide it. Any other questions? Yes, Mike? Are there that have the of Yes. Yes, yes. Uh, the ether, Eastern churches have their own saints. Uh, and they generally have pretty much the same criteria. Uh, years before, uh, the second, uh, the 12th century, uh, it was again by acclamation. People who had done big things for humanity, whether it be for the church specifically or for the local community or whatever, but good and graceful things, by the grace of God, they were declared a saint. Uh, the requirement has been uh, narrowed down to almost the mirror image. Of what Rome requires. But yes, the Eastern churches do have their own saints. And some of the, uh, liturgical Protestant churches do as well. Okay? Yes? Well see, that would be pretty much like the, the earlier church way of doing it by just general acclamation and not going through the rigorous test that we have to today. Uh, Rome has declared that there is no other way. General acclamation does not work. Even for himself. Uh, if you recall that at uh, John Paul II's funeral, many people uh, cried out in, in very loud voices uh, that they wanted him to be declared a saint now. And uh, Rome said no. Five years minimum Time requirement after the death. Mother Teresa now has been uh, dead. I think it is 15 years. So it will be 15 years in September. She has not quite gotten to sainthood yet, but she is well along the way. Uh, Frank, no dumb questions. Well, that is what the canon is. It is a list of official acknowledgement of who is in heaven. That is the prime criteria. And, of course, that's why you can't, you know, call your Aunt Minnie uh, St. Minnie because there is no way to prove, even though you may believe she's in heaven, there's no way to prove it. All right? Uh, there are a number of those, yes, and Rome has a list. I don't know if it's available. I would kind of doubt it. Uh, by the way, I do have one of the requirements today. It wasn't always this way, but one of the requirements today of um, to meet the test for canonization is exhuming the body of the deceased there is a cause for the process of canonization for Solanus Casey anyone know of or heard of Solanus Casey he is a Franciscan monk uh, from uh, Detroit, Michigan where I came from I'm glad I came from there um, anyways uh, my godfather knew Solanus Casey. His cause has been entered to Rome uh, for the process. I have a video, a VHS video, of the exhumation of his body in 1957. He died. Let me think. now he died in 57. This would have been 1997, 40 years later. All right, his body was exhumed. It was buried out in the, in the monk's uh, little grave in the back of the monastery. Uh, when it was pulled up, when the casket was pulled up, it was so heavy because it was full of water. Uh, the table, water table level is very high in Michigan, and uh, the casket was full of water. So they drilled holes in the bottom of it to let the water out. All right, when they opened it up, his body was fully intact. That is one of the indications of a person who was preserved because of his holiness. All right, uh, and I do have a video uh, of that. I'm going to try to convert it to C D C DVD rather and play it here some evening. Anybody know where I can get a VHS tape converted to DVD? Hmm? Well, they do that? Okay, good. Thank you. Alright, so we'll announce that some later date. Yes? Oh, okay, good. Very good. Yes, ma'am? Well, God told us right in the beginning that you will always have the poor with you. So, there is we can ask why until the cows come home, but we're never going to get a satisfactory answer. Alright. Well, I hope you all enjoyed this DVD, and if I, uh, can get this, uh, tape on Solanas Casey converted, it's not very long as this one was, uh, we will have another, uh, showing. So I want to thank you and we end with a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the grace of being able to visualize what some of the great heroes of the church have accomplished and the fact that they are now with you in heaven reigning. So we ask all the saints, uh, and most particularly, of course, Mary, the mother of God, the Queen of Saints, to bless us with their prayers. So help us to really understand what it is you want of us in our particular life so that we might fulfill it to the very best of our ability with the help of your grace. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.